You're on That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while now, you know I'm all about finding new ways of working, dreaming big and making it happen. The trickiest part of this, though, can be figuring out what you want to do. There are few people as qualified to talk on this as today's guest. She's a podcaster, business owner, DJ, best-selling author and presenter known as Flex Mummy. Her book is called The Success Experiment and it's her guy to knowing what you really want and how to get it. I am so ready for this. Flex, you've written a whole book on it, but what does success mean to you? Success for me lies somewhere between ensuring that my inner reality matches my outer reality, which means that the things that I think and feel and know inside my brain, my heart, my mind, my soul are in alignment with with what I do say, experience, and how I present myself. And I feel like it's very difficult to do because I know for myself and a lot of people around me, life is mostly survival. And sometimes you end up doing things out of whack, or you end up Mm -hmm. being a caricature of yourself, or you just have to get things done. And how you feel about it is secondary to the fact that you have a responsibility to self, you have an obligation to those around you, and, and it's just not a priority. So that's success to me. And I would say if I had to give it a, a, a sub a subcategory and a subcategory, I would say success is also choice and being able to execute on that choice. I think a lot of us find ourselves having to choose the best option, which is usually the one that is the easiest for someone else or um, uh, one that's aligned with social norms and expectations, but having choices and being able to say, no, I choose that for myself, despite what it may seem like. And then if I had to have a next subcategory, it would be I would say success is being obligated to yourself first as a priority. How many of us can, you know, get to work, rain, hail, or shine, doesn't matter if we've been sick or we're burnt out, but the moment you have to, you know, come true on that promise you made yourself to go to the gym or drink water or have some quiet time, it's, oh, you know, I didn't get around to it today. And I'm terrible at being obligated to myself constantly. Because I'm like, oh, I've, I've had to do all these things in a day. I don't want my mind, body and soul to be this like place of, you know, discipline and obligation. But sometimes it's necessary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And your career now is pretty unorthodox. I mean, it's not something you'd see on Seek. It's experimental. How key has that approach been? You know, throwing out the rule book and not being obligated to some way of working that was invented by some white guy named Greg like how key has that been to your success pretty fundamental I thought early on you know 10 years ago when I was able to turn when I was able to become a full-time DJ I felt really invincible and part of that mm-hmm. and part of that invincibility was just the nature of you know finishing high school not doing very well and thinking that my options were so limited to transitioning into this career path that felt so out of the ordinary it felt extraordinary yeah. and i felt as though well, what else can i do and so each job after that the mtv presenter the podcaster the author all felt like i was just uh honoring that part of myself that felt invincibility and I ended up thinking to myself, you know, work is work and 
you can easily get into the trap of rewarding yourself for exploiting your own labor. Like, of course, I'm going to be mm-hmm. successful if I'm working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. That's at the very least it's what I would want to do. But the more that I work and the more that I define success, it actually has to work the whole way through. I don't want to do it the way Greg's done it because yes, it does work, but at what cost, you know, like at the exploitation of a bunch of people at being at odds with what I believe to be right, being uncomfortable, um, having to almost wear the skin suit of somebody else just to show up. It actually doesn't work. And I think given the career path that I'm in, and how it can often be perceived to be quite simple or quite easy or quite effortless and it being anything. But it's important to me that I still honor this, the part of the career that can be quite simple. I know a ton of DJs and influencers or radio presenters who don't find work to be stressful, who find it to be quite a very relaxing and easy thing to do. And I want to honor that. I don't want to be like everyone behind the curtain. It's scary. here. It's hell. It's horror. No, I want to be like, it's actually quite chill. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> and so, like, you touched on it a bit there, but how um, did becoming the closest representation to your authentic self, you know, re- you obviously have a really clear brand. <clears throat> you don't try and be anybody else. You are, you know, it appears from the outside completely who you are. How key is that to success? I mean, for this particular field, I think it's really important, but I don't think, I mean, it's important for me, but I don't think it's important for the role. I remember having a conversation about five years ago with some of my peers and I was talking about how I found it to be so completely draining to bring all of myself to the internet. If I'm having a bad day, Mm. if I'm having period pain, if I'm, you know, if I've had this really a tough conversation with a stranger online about racism. Like I don't want to have to uh, be so raw and real. And they were so confused because they were like, we don't come on the internet and be raw and real. We are just projecting a part of ourselves that is uh, commercially viable. You know, like if we want to be more attractive to a certain audience, that's the self we're bringing today. And I was at, it was at that point I knew in some ways, not that I had made a mistake, but I just wasn't built in a way that was inherent like everybody else was because I just oscillate yeah. in such extremes. I'm like, well, if we're going to do it, why don't we just be ourselves? You know, if we're going to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, why do I have to be professional in an email? Why can't I just put, you know, crystals on my teeth and like switch up my hair and put XXs and do whatever? Why can't I? And the thing is I can, but the the difficulty with that is like when you're doing something in your own unique way, you have to set these rules and, um, these rules for yourself. And when you're making your own lane, you have to pave it and then cement it and then put the trees down yourself and then garden and prune. And there is something I could imagine to be so much easier about going down the path that's been well lit and well paved for years to come and just having to walk. Like you only need the motor school you've had since you were born, as opposed to all of these other things to justify going down the same path, your peers gone down quite easily. And so mm-hmm. for me now to honor what I've done so far, it's really important for me to be myself, but to be more mindful of what that exchange is and if it's really worth it. The internet, especially media is a lawless place and it has oh, been yeah. a lawless place. And I'm not going to hold like the ethics and the morals of the whole industry on my back because that would be the noble thing to do. I don't want to be noble. I don't want to be a martyr. I want to enjoy. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, absolutely. And so it's kind of finding that balance of like, how do I still make this enjoyable to me? Plus, you know, coming through on the obligation of doing the job well and showing up and being mindful of what I've promised to my community, uh, not verbally, but through behavior, what I've done up until this point, you know, how can I maintain that for them, but figure out that nice balance of not just eroding at my sense of self for somebody's entertainment. I love that because, you know, we hear this uh, all the time, you know, just be authentic, be yourself, be authentic. But um, I think what you're saying is that there are, you have to have some boundaries around that because you don't have to give every part of yourself over to the fucking internet or to your, even your boss, you know, whether or not your job is that frontward facing. I really like that, like keeping some back for yourself. I think that's really important. So you've done so many jobs. And like you said before, um, you've kind of bounced to one incredible thing to the next but how did you get started on figuring out what you wanted to do definitely hadn't I mean I I would say when I wrote the success experiment part of my difficulty with it and with talking to the publisher is that I was living it in real time so it was hard to talk in retrospect but also in the present yeah so but It was, I remember being, I don't know, so I graduated school, I would have been 17 and I was the youngest of all my friends, which meant that they were able to go into the next stage of their life quite simply. They could start drinking and partying or whatever. And I was stuck in this time capsule of Mm. adolescence because I still was a teenager. And so I, for our like final test exam, I got 56 out of a hundred, which I thought was very strange because I was in a lot of advanced classes and I would put my hand up and engage and, but I just didn't like academia and I didn't really understand testing. And I just wasn't motivated to do well because I didn't know how it would fit into the big picture. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I couldn't really contextualize the effort. But so when I graduated and everyone was picking, going to their cool uni things and I didn't have the marks to really get into uni, I just worked. I just got heaps of jobs and just made money. And eventually when I decided to try going to a fashion business school and then I dropped out and after like months and then I studied PR and then I dropped out in months time. But I did get an internship that turned into a a part-time job which turned to a full-time job. And at that point, I and I still do now derive a lot of my sense of self from my career. And so when I was not very good, naturally, that's another thing. I, I, I tend to curate my life around things I can do well, <laughs> you know? Mm, so I don't like to try so new things key. that I'm not going to be good at because why would I do that to my sense of self and my self, self-esteem? So I was freaking out because I felt really self-congratulatory for not getting good marks, but having this really esteemed cool girl job and get to wear heels and makeup to work and like talk all day, but then not being naturally good at it and not having a great understanding. And so I was just oscillating between being smug and being ashamed and being smug and being ashamed. And I just, and at the time I was like, well, I just need a different job because that's all I'd done at that point worked. So maybe I need a fun job, right? And if I, if I have a fun job in addition to this difficult job, then it, it'll create balance. And I remember at the time my friends were clubbing heaps. So I didn't drink at that point. So, you know, clubbing kind of gets boring when you don't drink. You're like, what am I really doing here? <laughs> And so I was like, but if I, I was like, imagine working in a club, like being a door girl or something. And so I became a door girl at this club 
and I met these DJs and I gave them some PR advice and, and some business management advice, what credentials, I don't know. But I had remember asking them, you know, why do you get DJs to play between 9 p.m. and midnight when nobody is in the club? It, I can't imagine it'd be good for their self-esteem and you're paying a lot of money. Why don't you, as the promoters, just do it or play some music and create a vibe? And they were like, well, we don't want to do that. And I was like, well, I could do it. I would do it. And they were like, so just do it. And you have to imagine I'm being employed by the venue to be a door girl and I've just rendered my services to <laughs> contractors to DJ and I can't DJ, but that's what YouTube is for. Yeah. And then so because I, because similar to now I had this, it was almost like I was an influencer aesthetically at the time. So I just dressed really fun and my friends dressed really fun. And to the clubs, like sick young girl dresses cool. Her friends dress cool. Of course we can book her to be a DJ. This is amazing. <laughs> Who cares if she can't DJ well? And so then that one shift a week turned into four and I was doing my daytime job and my nighttime job. And I was just living this double life. But then I remember my brother was like, why don't you just be a DJ? And I was like, that's not a real job. Like I can't be a DJ. <laughs> He was like, why not? I think that could be a cool job. And so I did it. And then that was the first big thing. It's like, well, I'm a DJ. And I was like, how did you get here? And I was like, I don't even know. And I'm sure it's going to fall to the wayside in a couple of weeks. Like, don't stress everyone. But it didn't. And it, 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 I think it felt so nonsensical at the time because, you know, as we all know, we look to people living lives that we don't have. And we say that must have been so difficult or that must have been so challenging or I'm 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 not built for that kind of career path. And even if I had those thoughts, I'd shattered that reality. So I was like, okay, what else can I just slide myself yeah. into? And so it's like I keep, kept sliding myself into places. And one thing remained true, and it's still true to this day, and there might be a few caveats. But a lot of the reason why I was booked for these things was based on aesthetics. I'm sure the majority of DJ gigs that I got at that time, if not more than 80%, didn't book me because they'd heard me play and were obsessed with the music. They didn't listen to a mix. They saw an aesthetic and they they added attributes to my character based on the aesthetic and what they thought it would do for them. And yeah. so that has been so instrumental in understanding the industry that I'm in that a lot of what people are identifying with is a look and a feel and, you know, right now having conversations and articulating myself is a big part of my personal brand. But when I made like these card games here in 2019, that was in response to spending a year on the internet or maybe even two being like, I can't compete where I can't compare with traditional influencers. And mm. I'm in Australia. I'm not like a bikini body, acai bowl type babe. And that was really popular. And so I knew very early on, my mum used to say to me all throughout my childhood, stay in your lane. Not just me. That was her quote. And I didn't understand that until, you know, you get to present day and you're like, oh, I, I, why would I go in someone else's lane? I don't know that there. I don't know the rules. And so what I did know was speaking and speaking hypothetically and having conversations and when I would start to use the question box on Instagram or whatever we had at that point to ask questions, of course it flopped. Everyone's like, what is this? Like, we don't talk on Instagram. And where are these, who's, I don't want to answer a question with my username attached. Who's going to see this? And there was so much friction about what I was trying to do until there wasn't friction, until yeah. enough people had experienced it for enough time that there was want and desire for more of these questions. And I was like, this is interesting. So there was an element of me that respected the idea that, you know, 
the world is vapid and superficial and we are attracted <laughs> to what we want to see in the world or, or what we want to see in ourselves. And there's a part of the world that I can attract with that, but there's also part of me that wants to enjoy the world that I'm living in. And so I need to be tactile about the way that I approach it. If I want to have conversations with people as equals and not be always in the position of like disseminating information to people who are like, I never heard that before, then I need to meet them halfway. I need to create a tool for that. I need to I need to be an active participant in this utopia I'm trying to create for myself. And so I go back and forth between like, these are the perils of being a tastemaker when you're first, nobody gets it and it's embarrassing, but then you wait two years and somebody gets it versus just do what's been done. You know, just respect that superficiality sells and sex sells and controversy sells. Just do that. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. It's really interesting because it seems like you've kind of taken that advice from your mum in terms of like staying in your lane, knowing what your brand is, knowing where your strengths are, but you've kind of played the game around you, but in a way that you still stayed authentic to who you are and protected your boundaries. Like it's very inspiring and really cool to hear you talk about it. I love it. And um, so one of the things that strikes me about the way that you've worked and the way that you've built this incredible career and, you know, no doubt you've got your butt off for it, um, is that you, you're quite good at failure. Like, you know, you talk there about getting not the best grades in school, dropping out of um, your uh, course that you went on, like other things. Do you think like part of that resilience to failure is part of your success too? Mm. It's interesting because I have a weird relationship with resilience. I thought I was a really resilient person until I realized that I just create a lifestyle that works for me. Like I said before, I do what I'm good at. I know my strengths and I stick to them. But I would say that I recognized early on that failure was quite integral to success because of how I started. It was through failure. You know, mm-hmm. had I gotten the marks that I wanted to get, I would have gone and studied psychology or something. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I would have, you know, stayed in PR and been a bit smarter or had a better understanding of the role. And so I would have excelled in it. And then I would have, you know, worked in PR and then started a PR agency. I don't know. Like that was the trajectory. Yeah. And I, the other thing that struck me as very interesting is that people don't really remember your failure. Like, unless you have people plotting on you who are, (laughs) who who are like quite instrumental, (laughs) you know, but realistically people are worried about their own stuff. And yes, they might be there when it's happening in real time. But when months go by, I have friends I've known for decades who are like, oh no, Mm -hmm. you've always been this way. You've always been so articulate. No, that's not true. Mm -hmm. I have distinct memories of being in high school and being so interested in like, you know, fiction books and fantasy books and personality typing and psychology and trying to explain these concepts I thought I understood to my friends and seeing their eyes glaze over and being like, what are you talking about, babe? We don't understand. I couldn't connect ideas because by nature, I'm quite an abstract, tangential thinker. It's spider webs, they're zipping and zooming and they're running about and I'm, I'm talking about you know, I'm trying to explain this restaurant to someone. I'm talking about textures and the lighting and they're like, what street is it on? I'm like, it's adjacent to that really cute palm tree. But if you, you know, they're not (laughs) understanding. And so now that I've made this career of speaking through heaps of effort of trying to understand, well, 
how expansive can my vocab get and and how how can I communicate more effectively? And is it important that people really understand me as intended and how quickly can I do that and how creatively? And now those same friends would be like, you've always been this way. No, mm, not yeah. at all. And so even that, you know, even my family will be like, yeah, you were always a talker. Okay. <laughs> like, if you say so. And so with that in mind, like if people aren't remembering when things go poorly, then I need to get through it quicker. I can't get stuck in oh, this, yes. this ambiguous state of not really trying but wanting for fear that it's going to look bad. It, you don't have enough time. And I'm not saying that we're living in a rush, but I think when you come to terms with how long it takes to build this thing you're trying to build, you recognize that you actually do need to start today. When I tell people that I first started DJing 10 years ago, Mm-hmm. They say ten. Yes, this years? is what I want to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Ten? I'm like yeah. it's pushing ten years. Yeah, that sounds crazy. Like you say, you've worked so hard to become so articulate and able to, you know, link your thoughts and create a formed arg- argument. Whereas, you know, that Instagram perception or that social media perception is that people are just discovered and rocketed. And I think that makes people question why that hasn't happened to them, and then they stop trying. Absolutely. And I don't think everything takes 10 years. I am definitely a big fan of momentum. And I th- I feel yeah. like intrinsically, I, I understand momentum by nature of the way that I exist in the world, where I always want to be moving and changing my mind and changing ideas. And so, yes, on a technicality, I've been DJing for 10 years, but I was only a DJ for a year before I was an MTV presenter. And I was only an MTV presenter for a year before I started getting into writing these uh, questions and, and sharing. And I shared those ideas for maybe a year before I started my first podcast. And I did that podcast mm-hmm. for maybe a year before I created the first conversation card game. So it's things are always happening. And, and that is the nature of stuff. You can not do anything, but life goes on and, and, and time has to pass. And I remember that, or I try to remember that when I think about the things that I want to be obligated to do to myself, right? So you know, everyone, it gets to the new year and everyone's like, I want to do 10,000 steps. I want to do Pilates. <laughs> and then I start doing Pilates and I'm freaking out because it's hard and I'm not naturally good at it. And I have this distinct memory of uh, me and my friend started Pilates at the same time. And while I was like, I dip in and dip out and dip in and dip out, she was consistent with it. And up until as of this year, she's now done, I think it's, a hundred classes or something, 150 classes, do you know? And I've done eight. (laughs) And then I think of when I was in high school, the best friend that I had at the time, we both decided we'd be DJs, DJs at the exact same time. And so where she practiced for like one or two weeks, I just kept doing it and I'm here and now she's where she is and we live polar opposite lifestyles. So there is something to say about just the habitual nature of showing up that accounts for so much because I didn't need to go to Pilates every day and be exceptional where we were both new, but I carried so much shame around not being good at it and being in an environment where everyone could see me struggling. And especially when you start doing comparisons, you know, you go into any room and you size people up and you say, where do I fit in relation to everybody else in this room? And I would look around and say, well, you know, 
that woman's literally 70, you know, and like, that's a random man. And, 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 you know, this person is smaller than me or bigger than me. And so I kind of know where I, where I fit. And then turns out the 70 year old woman is the most fit person in the class. And oh, yeah. the, the small person <laughs> who I thought would be, you know, lean and killing it, struggling as much as I'm struggling. And then I don't know where to place myself. And then it becomes this uh, competition of, of self and not, you lose sight. And I was like, this is too much. This is too much. A hundred percent. But that consistency is huge and not letting yourself cut yourself off before you get there. Like I often think like it's good to do things before your brain realizes what you're up to. Yeah. Like just fucking charge into things, right? Because otherwise you're going to talk yourself out of it. hundred percent. On that same vein, what do you make of manifesting and what that means in practice for you and, you know, how, how do you use manifesting? It's interesting because I used to talk about manifesting a lot. I remember when I wrote the book, I was speaking to my mom about it and she was asking me to explain the concept to her. And she was like, it's so strange. You used to talk about this when you were in high school. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, you just had this belief system. I didn't understand where it came from, given our circumstance, single parent household. My mom's a cleaner. Yeah. She's like, I don't really feel like that's quite aligned with <laughs> what the world was like. Um, and I don't know where it came from also because, you know, a lot of people attribute manifesting to to be a, a, quite a religious practice. Like it's similar to praying and stuff. And my family is quite religious, but I'm only just like, periphery religious and I think that's kind of like a byproduct of just being in that environment Mm -hmm. so when I was writing the book and I had to break it down I was thinking if people aren't spiritual or religious or believe in esotericism and it's not innate then what is it and I think it's this nature of um willing yourself into action and I feel like in mainstream pop manifesting, it's the action that's missing. People talk a lot about the will and the hope and the faith and the want and the desire, which is a huge portion and it's very valid and I'll get to that. But there's the action component that kind of gets missed because it doesn't feel special anymore if I have to try because I've been trying and this manifesting thing is my last hope. So why are you selling my labor back to me? And I feel like what I also tried to do from from the book was figure out the science behind manifesting as well, because you have people who are in positions of ob- objective prestige, sportsmen, politicians, billionaires, whatever, who also speak to a practice similarly. So what is the connection or what's the interconnectivity? And what comes up a lot of the time is people don't take into consideration that your experience in the world is filtered by you. You've created Mm. your own very specific filter. I can't confirm that the way you see the sky is how I see the sky. And I can't confirm the way that you experience people is how I experience people. But all I know for a fact is what I know. And I feel like up until people have to do things for themselves, they don't realize that subjectivity rules their existence. And so you start to say, okay, but how is that informing the way that I see the world? Well, you have your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. Your conscious mind is all the things that you can see, taste, smell, hear, experience. But we could be in the same room at the same time drinking the same thing. And I could be like, this is deliciana. And you'll be like, this is disgusting. (laughs) And we can understand that in that concept, in this micro concept, but in the macro, you can't understand that in the grand scheme of things, I could walk through the world and think I can 
have access to everything and you'd be like, I can have access to nothing and they're yeah. both valid. So it's that belief system, right? But not just that belief system. Uh, it's still relative to the reality. People who I attribute to be really great manifestors have kind of understood understood the social fabric of the world the powers that be the systems in place that make it so things happen or don't happen but also they recognize their personal agency and their personal power and so Mm -hmm. another thing is that the subconscious mind it just catalogs everything that you've ever experienced separate to your knowledge and the issue with your subconscious mind is that it doesn't have an agenda its only role is to recognize and identify patterns and also store these patterns so you and your body can achieve homeostasis which is this idea of doing things without thinking, breathing without thinking, um, smelling without thinking, blinking without thinking, but also it happens for your mental thoughts. And so what informs your subconscious mind is what you watch, what you watch, what you say, who you speak to, how you speak to them, who speaks to you and all of these things. And if you're not mindful of how it's being programmed, then you're constantly being system updated by these incidental interactions. When you say to yourself, oh, I'm just, I'm so annoying. I'm so stupid. I'm so ugly. Yeah. Like you might say that because self-deprecation is a social tool, but your subconscious mind is like, babes, I got you. I got you. You are Mm -hmm. ugly and you are stupid and you can't have the things you want. So let me just get that on repeat for you. And I feel like for people a lot of us feel like we know our bodies really well by virtue of being in them our whole lives, but we don't study them and we don't learn them. And we also don't take into consideration that science and how it views the human body, it's trying to be as objective as possible. And so it's not taking into consideration that you in your own body can change the way that you perceive things, right? Mm-hmm. And so that I think is fundamental because I fundamentally believe a lot of things that have helped inform my reality. I remember my mum had this conversation with me when I was about 16, 17, and um, I was telling her about this teacher that was asking me what I would wear to Multicultural Day. And I was like, I don't know. I I responded and I said, I'm going to wear my new American apparel disco pants. And she was like, what? And so I was like, I I was telling my mum, I had the weirdest experience at school today. This teacher's being so strange. And mum's like, you really don't see yourself the way others see you. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, you see yourself as this person with interests and layers, but like, you're just a black person in a white environment. And I was like, no, like, no, like some of my friends are Asian. Like, you know, and she was like, no, like truly this, this, and obviously the language she was using is different, but with the language that I know, she's like this nuance and this, this uniqueness that you see in yourself gets flattened into whatever you're being perceived as. And unfortunately for you in this environment that we live in, we're not necessarily in the most multicultural environment. And even if we are, Australia's relationship to blackness isn't, isn't uh, varied. So you're being seen as really one dimensional. And she's like, I worry for when you go into the real world, you're going to be very shocked for how you are tied to these ideas about yourself as unique and special as you feel to other people, you're a flattened version of yourself. And so I remember being like, oh, can I get piercings and can I get tattoos? And she's like, no, because you can't rise above the perception of yourself. Like you will be this flattened person. And so I I felt like because, because as you do when you're an adolescent, you rebel against these things that people tell you. So I was like, no, Mm -hmm. like I can, I can rise above. Like I'm different and I'm special. And she used to say like, you are special and you are different and you are all these things. But she wanted me to reconcile these incompatible truths that it took me a while to do it. But in the meantime, I was fortifying the sense of self that said, despite the norms, I could do whatever I want. 
and like mm. it's a different type of delusion it's adolescent hubris it's just like this steadfastness that's unshakable and so that feeds into this idea of manifesting I feel like it's this like steadfast belief followed by the steadfast intent. I feel like people have a really wavering intent. And I often find that what people perceive in me to be confidence, I think it's just conviction. Yeah. My mind is always changing. I don't feel quite strongly about a lot of things. I just have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things, but I don't want answers and I don't care to find answers, but it's the conviction with my delivery, with um, how it's measured against other people. It's like people people uh, assume that like assertiveness must come with confidence, must come with intelligence, must come with acumen. And so people gave me these qualities and then I embodied them. And so with my, if my intention is always, I want to be able to prove myself wrong or prove people wrong, then that's like a really aligned system that's primed for the other thing, which is just incidental. So if I believe this thing strongly about myself and my intention lines up, then my actions are quite incidental. It, it all mm. just merges into one. You know, I start acting in alignment and then the action becomes effortless. So for example, when I, I mentioned being, you know, 16 or 15 and trying to tell my friends about these ideas that I was so passionate about, but I didn't know how to explain the person who I perceive myself to be could explain things well. Like I've captivated my friends before with a story. I know how to get them interested. So I know I can tell this story. And so my intention was just to be understood, but also to understand the people around me. And so I kept looking for ways. I kept looking for ways. Well, if I don't have the words, I need to find more words. And if I don't have the cadence, I need to explore my vocal register and speak more assertively. And so that together, plus this action, created this almost almost alchemized this um like fertile ground to be able to manifest to put this belief and this intent and this action into practice that from the outside in looks very mystical and things just kind Mm. of fall into place and it's effortless and also like it doesn't sound sexy to be like when you think stuff and do stuff stuff happens but that kind (laughs) of is the process but then I will say also I've always felt lucky, which my mum would say it's very at odds because look at look at your circumstance, look at our circumstance. Like, you yeah. know, we've got divorced parents. My dad was abusive. Then they got divorced when I was three months old, single parent household. Like, you're not a lucky girl, babe. But I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel quite, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I feel quite invincible. And who knows? Is that because I read a lot of fantasy books growing up? Like, I don't know. But it's just some things you feel intrinsically. I have a lot of friends who feel intrinsically neurotic, intrinsically anxious, intrinsically Mm. not worthy. And it's a very unfaltering thing. No amount of compliments is going to shake that within them. Do you know? Mm. And I think we we don't hold enough space for that reality that a lot of how we get to operate in the world is a byproduct of what's been fed to us or what we've consumed at one point or another. Who knows what I consumed at the very formative part of my life that gave me this self-belief that I can have what I want in the way that I want it. I don't know. But I if love that's it. the Thank case, God you did. Yeah, it kind of worked <laughs> out. And we can look back in retrospect and say, well, maybe it was your mom or maybe it was being raised with religion or maybe it was isolating yourself. Maybe it was this. It could have been a ton of things. But all I know is that these, these things that people say they do to achieve a certain level of output visualization and manifestation and creating habits it's all there 
It's just very boring to do when it's not intrinsic. So one of the big things in the book that was really cool to me um, that you talk about um, when you're trying to figure out what you want to do next, because obviously, like you said, you've got these big ideas, you've got these big dreams, and there's so many things you want to do. But one of the things you use is the why funnel. Tell me what that is and how it helps. Well, I feel like, and this, when I was writing the book, I was thinking about what I mentioned to you before, that I can be quite convicted. My ideas are never really concrete. They're ever moving and ever changing. But I I often just find a lot of power in doing. I'm just like, let me just do it and see what yeah. happens. Yeah. And so, you know, when you get into that role of doing a lot and then your friends and your peers are like, how do you do it? This saying just do it doesn't resonate. And so then I would find myself trying to coach them through how they would just do it. And initially my approach was giving them tools for action. So you want to start a podcast, well, just get a name and, you know, get a concept and get a mic and then record it. But what people were looking for that they couldn't find in the action was the reason, you know, Mm. like it's people like, well, I want to feel more confident and then I'll start. I want to know exactly what I'm doing and then I'll start. And then I would keep asking, but like, why? It's like, I remember the first podcast I ever made, it was with this girl, Bobo. And the second conversation we ever had was the first podcast episode. I was like, what do we need to practice for? I don't understand. We can just do it. If it doesn't sound good, we can not put it out. I don't understand. And so, so when I was talking to my friends, why would come up a lot. And it reminded me of how I was perceived when I was younger. Everyone's like, you always ask too many questions. You ask too many questions. But the why gets to the root of the issue and the root of the issue creates space for action. So for example, let's say this podcast example, people be like, I really want to start a podcast like yours. Why? Mm. Oh, uh, because I really want to share the conversations I'm having with my friends. I think they'd be really interesting to other people. Why? Because I don't feel like people are having conversations like we're having. Why do you think that? because I see it. I'm like, where do you see this? On the internet? Like, are you in people's houses? How do you know they're not having conversations you're not having? Well, I don't feel represented by the things that I'm seeing online, but why do you need to feel represented? What is the value in everybody creating media that you're creating? Well, because, well, now that I think about it, it's not really about that. I just feel like I actually would prefer to, you know, to do something for myself. I haven't really created anything for myself in a long time. Why haven't you done that? Oh, because like, I just, I like time got in the way and then work got in the way and then it wasn't important. Why wasn't it important? Oh, because like work was paying me and need to make a living. And that was more validating. Which bit is validating? The money is more validating or like the verbal. And then suddenly you're kind of like, whoa, like it's too much. It's too complicated. And I'm like, I only ask that because sometimes there are simpler ways to get to what you want. You know, you don't need to start a whole business to get validated by people. You don't even need to make a podcast. Can't you just make videos and put them on the internet? Like, do you need to to create a whole new medium to communicate your thoughts? You know, can't just have conversations. And so at the time, and my disposition, I mean, people might not recognize it in me now, but my approach is a lot softer than it would have been five years ago. I definitely would have been a bit of a shark. So I'd been like, but why? Um, so at the time, I, I feel like the delivery was too harsh to create impact. But what I was trying to get to the point of 
based on where I was at that point was that everything kind of divulges into the same outcome if your intention doesn't change. Mm. And so for me, everybody's like, oh, like you do so many things, you must be interested in a lot of stuff. No, it's because the same thing that happened in PR, this idea of like, I went there, I thought I'd be a natural at this, I'm not very good. It evolved. I went there, I'm actually quite good. I don't really enjoy it that much. You know, let me try something else. And then I bring the same energy and the same intention into this new place. And I wonder why it's exactly the same. And I'm like, well, <laughs> if I leave it for a bit, I'll come back to it and it'll be different. Yeah, yeah, So I yeah. wasn't taking into consideration how much me and my energy and my intensity was changing the outcome of every situation I'd been in. So to kind of, to kind of stop my friends from going through that same lackluster experience, I was trying to create a shortcut for them almost. And if you get to the why and you start with the why, then I think you'll get to the outcome that you want a lot sooner. But I don't think you can take shortcuts in that way in hindsight. I still, I, I, I back, the why funnel in terms of the understanding, because for me, you know, I think a lot of people perceive me to be like a girl boss by nature. I don't want to work. I've never wanted to work. I wanted, I used to be the most fantastical, like fairy girl there was just in my little books reading. And the only reason why I worked is because when I was younger, I just didn't, I, my object permanence was just not great. Like I would lose my things constantly, lose my phones, come crying to my mom, be like, mom, I lost my phone. Mom, I lost my phone. And I do it now. I'll get up and leave my phone on a restaurant bench and be like, oh, I don't know what, what happened. I, like I turn around and say, but so at, she was like, if you want to get a phone, you have to get a job. And I was like 14 and I was like, how do I get a job? And she was like, you got nine months. So when, so 14, nine months, I was like, at McDonald's making money. And then I was like, oh, if you want to buy more expensive things, you need more hours. I'm like, let me get another job. And then so I, so I've only ever worked for lifestyle. And Mm. then you get stuck girl bossing because your lifestyle improves and you're like, well, I want a little bit extra of this. But if I didn't have to work, I wouldn't, do you know what I'm saying? So oh yeah, knowing my why, knowing my why is superficial than most. I'm not looking for a sense of self through work. I'm looking for money to cultivate a lifestyle. That means that like I could get to the point of being like, you don't have to give your heart and soul and, you know, and go on the internet and talk about internalized racism, the economy, uh, like whatever, just to make a bag. Like you can also Mm -hmm. have fun with it like everybody else and you can make your silly little jokes and put in your silly little outfits and you too have the value of doing that. And maybe somebody else's why is to be validated in the way that they weren't validated before. Give people opportunities to validate you, share your stuff share your ideas, you know, put it in the sphere and see what happens. Oh, I just adore it. Everything you say, Flex, is so right. I know you got to rush off. So if people are feeling a bit lost right now, they have no idea what the next step is towards their version of success. What's your advice to them? Just like, what's the one thing that you think everyone can do today to start moving closer to their version of success? Chase a feeling, not a title. I feel like a lot of my ailments in life have come from this fact that I'm like, don't have a great mind, body, soul connection. I'm very good at suppressing what I feel to get things done. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about like, if I just get through today, if I just get through tomorrow, then finally I'll do that thing. And it's like, but what is that thing you're chasing? And as soon as I had to start attributing feelings to my wants, like I want to feel 
like whole and I want to feel impressed with myself and I want to feel validated by my efforts, that changed the trajectory really, really quickly. Because suddenly mm-hmm. it's like when I walk into a meeting and I'm being a caricature of myself, I'm like, well, that's not impressive, babe. <laughs> yeah, not impressive. <laughs> it's kind of lame if you really think about it. <laughs> I also think everybody would benefit from some like deep uh, like self-assessment. Mm-hmm. I know people really gawk at personality types and astrology and all these things. I'm not saying either of those methods are great, but I truly feel like, and that's why the book starts, it, the book is divided into six chapters and the first chapter is who are you? Mm-hmm. The next chapter is who do you want to be? Because mm-hmm. if you, honestly, those two things become real, real barriers in order to get what you want. Like you just have to know, are mm-hmm. you lazy fundamentally? The sooner you know that, the better. <laughs> are you unreliable? Mm-hmm. You know, are you a bit of a people pleaser? The sooner you know that you can say, okay, well, who do I want to be? I don't mind that I'm unreliable, but I'd actually like to be a bit more creative, mm-hmm. sick. Mm-hmm. And then we start thinking, well, what do you actually want? Because that's another thing. People don't really know what they want because then when I ask, why do you want it? You start acting confused. Oh, mm-hmm. isn't it obvious? Mm-mm. It's not. You tell me. I'd love to know. You know, these things, you know, the older I get, the more time I spend in this, in this industry, I'm convinced that like simplification is such a benefit. It's mm. such a circle jerk and an ego trap to be like, I'm so complex and unique <laughs> and the things I want are so complicated and nobody would get it. Like, I don't just want to start a business. Like, I want to revolutionize the way girlies buy lip gloss. It's like, okay, like, whatever you say, babe. You know, if, if we can just simplify it, not for anybody else. It's not about the story you're telling or the pitch, just for your own understanding of yourself. It's so healing. Like mm-hmm. for me, once I got out of that anti, that uh, over-intellectualizing trap, when I'm like, bitch, sometimes I don't have thoughts. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't have anything complex to say. Sometimes I actually don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being like, well, no, no, I know. And like, I, I totally understand. And like, I read something really similar the other day. No, I don't know anything. <laughs> and sometimes I too am basic and have basic interests and like what everybody else likes in the way everybody else likes them. Once you get through that, like everything else seems easier. Nobody's scarier to you than yourself. And that's why we all struggle. We're all bypassing ourselves to get to this like enlightenment stage. And it's like, no, you have to. It's it's a pyramid. I often reference Maslow's hierarchy of needs and people don't like it because it was co-opted by, um, it was co-opted by people of color, the concept, but that concept isn't uh, readily documented. So it's hard to find the roots of it. But so for those who don't understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it looks like a pyramid. And at the bottom of the pyramid is kind of like the the very basics that you need. But fortunately, there are a lot of ways that you can be fulfilled on a basic level. Food, shelter, water, um, you know, clean clothes, that kind of thing. And then the next level up, it's like acquaintanceships and work and you know and the next level up is close relationships and you know a personal philosophy and all of these things and then the very last triangle at the very top that's extremely hard to get to is self-actualization and when people regard this hierarchy of needs the bottom is the not the most important need but almost the fundamental to get to the next stage and that stage is fundamental to go up the pyramid and what happens now and where i think most of us who are interested in being better versions of ourselves 
we skip the fundamentals and want to go straight mm-hmm. to self-actualization. Well, I definitely don't get eight hours of sleep and I don't drink enough water and I don't exercise, but, <laughs> but like I want to be actualized and I want to be the this best version of myself. How do I get there? And it's like, it's been the same for eternity. You do the basics. You have safety and security. You feel like, think about the fundamentals of feeling safe. Like, you know, the friends you feel safe around, you say things You're like, oh, was that dumb? I don't care. Was that silly? I don't care. I feel whatever. I can be whoever, say whatever, do whatever, look ugly, be ugly. And it's fine. Cause like, I don't know. These are my people. You could have that everywhere. You could feel Mm. safe at work. You can feel safe at the club. You can feel safe socializing with strangers, you know, but we're like, no, 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 because in this self-actualized world, I get to do nothing difficult, everything easy, get exactly what I want. And I'm just going to aim for that. It's like, okay. Mm. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there's a method here that we're all kind of ignoring because it's not sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is tricky. And you are so right. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Flex is a podcaster, business owner, DJ, best-selling author, and presenter. And you can check out her book called The Success Experiment. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There is heaps more practical advice in there that is going to make this so much easier for you. It is really brilliant, and I know you're going to love it. Check it out. If you haven't already, leave me a review because I know you're going to have loved this episode. So just give me a sneaky little exchange there and leave me a lovely review. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm Ed Stott, and I sincerely hope that's helpful.